Lovely day for tennis, eh? Game set and match. This is Tennis Talk Canada with Jim Taddy on TSN 1050. Well, welcome aboard. First ever Tennis Talk Canada on TSN 1050. Jim Taddy with you for an hour. Ken Cressida, Director of Tennis at the Mayfair Clubs, is my co-host. Welcome, Ken. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. It's going to be fun. We've got some guests lined up to help us get through and, and set up the Australian Open. Uh, Daniel Nestor will be by very shortly in about 10 minutes or so. Michael Downey, the president and CEO of Tennis Canada, will stop by. And Mark Rowe, who's going to anchor and host the TV side, the TSN extensive coverage of the Australian Open. We're going to set the table. And, and just so you understand, not on every week. Uh, this is a, a new venture, so we'll be on at least six times this year, setting up the four slams and a couple of other events. Our next show will be the uh, setting up the BNP Paribas uh, Open uh, March 7th, uh, the, the event at Indian Wells. So that's our next show. We have some time to, to sort of downshift from this one. But uh, in terms of what's happening at the Australian Open this year, on, on the women's side, obviously disappointment because Bianca can't be there and Jeannie didn't make it. Absolutely, yes. Uh, Jeannie battled hard through the qualifying and lost in the third round, but she had some good matches. And leading up to... Uh, the Australian Open qualifying. She's been playing much better, training much harder, I believe. And of course, Bianca with the knee injury. The good news is uh, she was out on court this week with a minor knee brace on, trying to still hit some volleys, not move too much, but keep her game in, uh, in good form. So we're expecting her back on the court real soon. And that'll take us to the, the next uh, breaking story. Leela Ann Fernandez, uh, and she is like 17 years old and has qualified. Another Canadian story in the making. Absolutely. Just 17 years old. She's come through the national training program in Canada. Uh, she has qualified. She beat an American la uh, last night, this morning, 7575. Uh, She'll be taking on uh, the American Lauren Davis in the first round, number 65 ranked player in the world. The good news for Fernandez is that Davis is five foot two, kind of slight uh, build, similar to her own. So she shouldn't be overpowered in the match, and it, it gives her a good chance going in there. She'll be nervous but a good opportunity to uh, kind of show what she has in a Grand Slam on the main stage. And at 17, obviously just scratching the surface. So what can we expect from her? Well, she does have a great game. She's a lefty, which is an advantage right away, with only about 10 to 11% of tennis players being left-handed. So that's a nice advantage for her. She's got a great baseline game, but she's also a pretty solid doubles player. I saw her play in the Tevlin Challenger uh, recently at Tennis Canada. She played some real good doubles, knows the court, moves well. And I think uh, she'll, she just needs to develop in her singles game a bit of a weapon. Right now, her, her greatest weapon is her consistency, but she's got to have that kind of put-away shot, whether it be the forehand or the backhand or attacking to the net. She's just got to transition to a little bit more of an attacking game, and I think we're going to see great things out of her. Ken, depth on the men's side, uh, four in, could have been more, but take us through the matchups and, and you know, who's playing who. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. It could have been four, but, uh, of course, Vashik Pospisil is back and uh, playing uh, great tennis. We're excited to see him healthy, uh, recovered from his surgery. He's uh, playing Karlovic in the first round. Karlovic is ranked a little bit ahead of him, but uh, Vashik is 4-1 lifetime against Karlovic, and he won the last four matches. They're all close, Karlovic with a huge serve. Uh, so Vashik has uh, toppled him in, in straight sets the last four times, but always close, 7-6, 7-6, 7-6, scores like that. Uh, I look to see Vashik winning that because I haven't seen him play this well for a number of years, so I look for that trend to continue. Uh, if he does uh, win there, he's got a tough one in his next round uh, playing against uh, Monfils. 
Uh, Felix plays a uh, Felix Oje Aliassim plays a qualifier in Ernest Ernest Gulbis. Uh, it's a tough first round match for him, uh, but they have played once before, and Felix took him out uh, in 2019 in Stuttgart by a score of seven five six three. So even though it's a tough match, Felix went through a little bit of a slump in the fall, but he's been playing great again. Uh, had a good match, la a good tournament last week. So look for Felix to uh, to win that one as well, hopefully. Of course, uh, Milos Raonic is back in the fold, mm. seated number 32 in the tournament. He takes on the number 48th uh, ranked uh, Albert, uh, and they've never played before. Uh, all reports are that Felix is feeling pretty healthy, and this surface and temperature should uh, bode well for his big serving game. And then the number 13 seed in the tournament, uh, the young lefty, Denis Shapovalov, uh, takes on the number 66 ranked player in the world, um, and they've never played before either. Um, Martin Fuskovitz, and I'm not 100% sure if I'm pronouncing that right. So uh, Could have been worse. That's right. Hopefully nobody yells at me. <laughs> uh, but Dennis has been almost unstoppable of late. Uh, so I look to see, uh, to see Dennis uh, take that match. He's got a tough, uh, tough lineup as well, uh, probably through to the third round, we hope. And then it looks like he'll take on Dimitrov if all the seeds go according to plan. So you were saying that Raonic is trending in the right direction uh, health-wise? Health-wise, yeah. You know, Raonic, uh, he has worked so hard. I see him uh, in Toronto quite a bit working out, getting himself into shape. Um, you know, he has been bitten by the injury bug quite a bit in his young career. But I've never seen a guy work harder to, to get back to being healthy again and then to try to stay healthy when he's out there. The big serve is a, is a, is a great advantage for him, uh, and I think he's going to look to use that and to try and shorten points up, certainly in the early stages uh, of the tournament. You know, it's interesting when you go back over his run and, and Jeannie's run, uh, you know, they are relatively young, and, and I think we'll get into this with Fernandez uh, starting out at 17. You forget how young that when they first made their, their first impression, and, and they've been around for a while, but there are plenty of miles left for both. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, uh, I grew up playing tennis in the city and when when Raonic was just 14 years old I played him in a men's league and uh, it, it wasn't pretty for me <laughs> uh, it went pretty quick and it was at that time that you, everybody started to take notice of him at the age of 14 15 um, and and he he and Jeannie both hit the scene in a big splash and did exceptionally well Jeannie as we know has had a little bit of a dip but as I said she is coming back uh, Raonic, with the injuries, um, he's had some struggles, but I really feel that his game still is uh, ready to go back into the top 20, and which will be incredible for Canada if he can get there again. Let's talk about the age group for, for Chapeau. Uh, there's a, a collection of really good 23 and under men's tennis players there that are just sort of poised. I mean, the top is thick, but at some point they're going to move up, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, and uh, you know, I, somebody told us in the tennis world years ago that Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer would be seated one, two, and three at the Australian Open in 2020. Nobody would have believed it, um, especially with this young, great talent coming along. But Medvedev is unbelievable, and he's kind of a crowd favorite. He kind of ticks off the crowd and then pleases the crowd. So he's kind of fun to watch, a little bit like McEnroe back in the day. Uh, Pass, a uh, young fellow from Greece, is incredible. Um, he's seated sixth in the Australian Open. Zverev, uh, seventh. Uh, Berrettini. There, there's so many young players that are coming up, uh, along with Shapo and Felix. Um, uh, Rublev, I think it's time for the young guys to take control, but I believe the tennis world has been saying that for the last three or four years. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure how quickly it's going to happen. 
The Australian Open is a challenging event to play, and to beat Djokovic in Australia is always tough. But look for one of these young guys to finally capture a slam uh, coming up at the Australian Open this year. I mean, I hate to refer to them this way, but those old guys, I mean, they're just not giving anything away, are they? No, and I think what happens is they drove each other to improve more and more and more a long time uh, as, as time went along. But then what happened is they kind of fell into a little bit of a funk and their game started to slide a bit. And then along came this new generation or the next generation. And it, it reinvigorated them to train harder again and to work harder to get their game to the next level. And they just don't want to give in. And we've never seen this before in the tennis sport. It's usually it, it's a little bit and then the new guys come along. But these, uh, these three uh, superstars have, uh, have really shown us what it takes. Okay, let's talk about the Australian Open. It starts tomorrow. Uh, first of all, there's that eco and wildlife catastrophe. And, you know, the byproduct, I almost hate to, to refer to it this way, because the, the, the catastrophe alone is just catastrophic. Uh, that makes any sense. But, but then there's the smoke that comes out of it, and it, and it does, you know, I feel kind of silly saying this, it does affect the, the tennis, because a lot of it, not all of it, is outdoors, and you have to breathe in. Absolutely, and, and we're hearing that, uh, obviously, I haven't been there, but I'm hearing that the closest fire is about 100 miles away, but the smoke that's transferring is, is um, uh, just beyond belief. Um, certainly, it's going to affect play. Um, whether or not the players agree to it or not, there were some issues during the qualifying with some players that had to uh, retire because of the smoke. Um, you know, I, I don't know because I'm not there, but I certainly feel that um, they're going to monitor it closely. And if it becomes an issue for spectators or for players, they'll find a way to uh, halt play. Um, as they've done in the past through, through heat that they've had at the Australian Open. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly horrific that it's happened, but it was nice to see that the players got together to raise some money to help um, the wildlife and to help the people of Australia kind of battle through what's going on there. It's kind of the world we live in where you have this really negative, nasty scene, and, and not too far away from it is a really positive scene. Yeah, absolutely, and it is tough, and I know it's tough on the players, and it's, and it's certainly tough on uh, the organizers to make the, the correct decisions moving forward. We hope they're making the right decisions, but the players have really rallied around it. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the, maybe the difference between the Australian Open and the other slams, and just in terms of, of the physical setup of, of where these people play. What, what are the differences? Well, I think years ago, physically, the, the Wimbledon was the toughest slam to win just because of the way the courts were. Um, but over time, technology's improved so much. Uh, we're able to keep the grass at a much better level. We're able to make the bounce off the grass much better. So you're finding in the, in the old days when we watched the McEnroe's of the world, it was always about on the grass getting to the net. Now our uh, great players at, at Wimbledon can stay at the baseline because the bounce is so pure. I really feel that the Australian Open is the most challenging of all the slams because of the heat that uh, we encounter and, uh, and because of the rallies are lasting so long now with that heat, it's just such a demand on, physically on the body. I, I honestly don't know how the players can do it because it does get so darn hot down there. But in terms of the, uh, the physical setup of, of the various courts and, and the structures, uh, if you go through all four of them, are they somewhat similar? Uh, yeah, they're somewhat similar. I, I, I think that the Australian Open is a little tougher on them again uh, through that setup just because the players have to arrive in Australia a couple weeks early. They have to climatize themselves to it. Um, the noise and things like that at a slam are like nothing else. 
Um, I think if you're going to find the toughest court to play on as far as um, what you're not used to, it has to be the, the U.S. Open, playing at Arthur Ashe Stadium and, uh, and trying to uh, live with the New York crowd that doesn't give a, a, a crap that you're trying to play a tennis match out there. They're, they're talking like they're at a baseball game or at an NFL game. They that's don't, New York. That's New York. And uh, I think for the players, the first time stepping out onto Arthur Ashe Stadium, the largest uh, tennis stadium in the world, I think that's the biggest challenge for them. Uh, obviously, the, the, the high watermark for Canadian tennis was, was Bianca winning the, the U.S. Open in the months since then. And regrettably, you know, with the knee injury, not at the, the Australian Open. But in the months since then, what has impressed you about sort of the, the ripple effect of that victory? Well, we've certainly seen more and more people turning to tennis in, in Canada. Um, Bianca has done an amazing job with that. And, of course, prior to her, we had the Nestors of the world and the Grant Connells before him and uh, Milos and Felix and Dennis. But with Bianca winning the U.S. Open, more and more people are talking tennis, more and more people are playing tennis. And, uh, you know, we're, I guess, for lack of a better word, we're front, front page sports now. Yeah. Rather than when I was younger, we were the fourth or fifth page buried underneath, the, you know, the pizza ads. So it's, uh, it's nice to see that Bianca wins uh, a Grand Slam and all of a sudden everybody's talking tennis. Well, that is a perfect segue because coming up next on Tennis Talk Canada, Daniel Nestor will join us. We're all looking forward to that conversation. This is Tennis Talk Canada on TSN 1050. You're listening to Tennis Talk Canada on TSN 1050. Here's Jim Taddy. Welcome back to Tennis Talk Canada. Jim Taddy with you alongside Ken Christina. Daniel Nestor's resume is just, I mean, it's second to none. 91 men's doubles titles, gold medal at the 2000 Summer Olympics, ATP World Finals, uh, Tour Finals, uh, eight Grand Slams, uh, multiple partners he's won with. Uh, uh, just an extensive file. Nobody is more qualified to talk about tennis and more accomplished than Daniel Nestor, and we're pleased to have him with us now. Daniel, welcome. How are you this morning? I'm good. Yourself? Uh, pretty good, thanks. Uh, when you look at the depth and the quality of, of Canadian tennis today, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's very exciting. Uh, probably surprised uh, as much as anyone as how far we've come so fast. And uh, but it's uh, it's amazing. And uh, you know, the, the greatest part about it is uh, how young our top players are. And uh, you would think that they're going to be around for a long time. So that's uh, that's the best part. Fantastic, Daniel. I know you uh, spent a little bit of time with the boys at uh, Davis Cup. What do you think of the new Davis Cup format, and what was it like hanging out with the young Canadians when they're under pressure of Davis Cup action? Because we know about your storied history of being uh, Mr. Davis Cup for Canada. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an amazing event. Uh, I mean, the, the conditions are, are really suitable for us, so hopefully it stays in Madrid for a long time. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think uh, our guys play great, and I think the format also, two out of three sets, and then two out of three matches uh, really helps us because, uh, you know, we play pretty fast. Uh, we like playing indoors, and, uh, and all the guys are very comfortable moving forward and, and playing uh, quicker points, so I think uh, it uh, caters to our strengths, for sure. Uh, Daniel, talk to us about the Australian Open. You won the doubles there in 2002. What What is particular about that that Open? Well, I mean, as you see, there's uh, there's you know, different uh, obstacles for the players, the heat, uh, and uh, the, the push fires seem to happen every year, and uh, and now it seems to be a little bit worse, uh, so the air quality might be a problem, and, and uh, you know, you have uh, really good fans, uh, it's 
it's a very well-traveled tournament. All, all the fans uh, from their respective countries come and support their players. It's a great place. Uh, you know, most of most of I guess the world's populations in the northern hemisphere, so they seem to to migrate down south, getting out of the cold to to come and, and watch uh, uh, tennis on vacation. And uh, so it's, uh, it's unbelievable atmosphere. And uh, I think uh, you know Canada's getting better better and better support uh, now that we're uh, we're a tennis nation and i think we've got uh you know it's too bad bianca's not playing but uh, we got a chance for one of these guys to make a serious run and, and possibly even a final one day soon so you mentioned bianca I- i'm sure you along with uh, the rest of us canadian tennis fans were just thrilled to uh see her win the u.s open uh, did you see that coming at all bianca's quick rise to stardom uh by doing so well in 2019 well, I don't think anyone saw that uh, that crazy of a rise that fast. I mean, once she won uh, Indian Wells, and obviously we all knew that she could compete with anyone. And then once she won the Rogers Cup, we knew she was a, a serious contender for the U.S. Open. But uh, you know, I'm not sure you know how that people thought she would actually come through because everyone was always worried about her health, and and uh, she hadn't played that many tournaments uh, last year coming into the U.S. Open, but, I mean, what she did was truly remarkable. Her record against top 10 players is, was, you know, was perfect, and, you know, it was just one of those stories that, uh, you know, no one will ever duplicate or, or you know, will be the legend will uh, will continue to go as for years to come. I, I, I like what you said there. I mean, it's, I mean, there's the victory, which is the major headline, but it's how she won, what she had to battle through, and who she did it against and where. I mean, that's phenomenal, isn't it? It is. I mean, people. I don't think people truly appreciate uh, how hard that crowd was in the final against her. I mean, you know, from playing Davis Cup, you know, I, I've experienced that. But I mean, you, you have a team there. You're it's a team competition. I mean, this is her by herself. You know, with twenty, twenty, twenty-five thousand people against her, which was, you know, pretty, uh, pretty tough on her. And it just shows how mentally tough she is. And and what she was able to to persevere through and, and uh, you know, it just adds to the to the the status of the, the win for sure. So you've played so many uh, great stadiums over the years, uh, Daniel. We were talking earlier about the toughest uh, court to play on or the toughest stadium to play on in the world. What was the toughest stadium that you ever played on in the world, uh, whether it was Grand Slam, Davis Cup, Olympics? Uh, what, what was it for you? Uh, I mean, toughest was a, an away tie in South America, Davis Cup, wherever that stadium was. Those were always tough because the crowd was against you, and uh, and you know you had you know sometimes somewhat abusive fans, and and you know it was always like close matches. Davis Cup, ten spring, not the best, and everyone playing free country, so you leave it all out on the court, and uh, you know so some of those matches were very memorable as far as you know, dealing with hostile crowds, but as far as like Grand Slams, I mean that's that's more enjoyable going out on all these courts and, and, uh, you know, being able to, to play in front of big, big crowds. I mean, it, it, I wouldn't say, uh, I always found the French open. I mean, I, I did well there, but, uh, you know, we didn't really get to, to play many matches on center court before the finals. And I always felt like it was a little bit slower than, uh, than the other courts that we played on to get to the finals. So that was always a little bit of a challenge, uh, getting used to that and, and, the final matches always seem to be pretty grueling. So, uh, and by the end of the tournament, you're already a little bit tired. So, maybe that'll uh, answer your question, Gus. I don't know. 
You've got all those those titles, all that success, um, the Order of Canada, Walk of Fame, and you, you've been retired for about a year and a half, still involved, obviously. But when you look back on it, what comes to mind? Uh, I mean, just, yeah, just the, the dealing with the ups and downs and, 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 you know, right now being in Toronto full-time, or you know, mostly is, is so much fun for me because I, I never really enjoyed the travel aspect of it. I enjoy competing. Obviously, tennis is what I was great at and, and love doing that and, and uh, you know, love being good at it. But the, the actual being away and, and always, like, living out of a suitcase and, and uh, hotel to hotel, different time zone, different time zone, having, you know, uh, pretty shy personality and a lot of times you know, especially early on being by myself uh, that is something I don't miss I miss uh, for sure you know competing and, and uh, you know being part of uh, those big matches so it was, it was fun to be at Davis Cup and, and watch the guys perform under, uh, under pressure and, and uh, you know it's such a, it's a big event so that kind of stuff uh, I'll remember from 30 years of uh, traveling did you have a chance at all, Daniel, uh, to put your feet up and watch any of the ATP Cup? Uh, and if so, what did you think of the, the new event this year? I know uh, most people seem to like it, but I'm sure uh, sure there's the odd critic. What, what did you think? No, I think it's amazing. I, again, it's it's a great event. It's just, you know, the only critique is that uh, you know you have the Davis Cup to end the calendar year in November, late November, and then you have the ATP Cup uh, to start the year, which is pretty much six weeks in between. So the last tournament of the year and the first tournament of the year are pretty much the same event. So it's, uh, it might be confusing for the fans as to, as to why they have these two events so close to each other. But, uh, I mean, the team format is a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, you, you watch the Labor Cup and, and all these team competitions, and, and even in different sports, and people tend to gravitate towards those a little more. So any, any time you can have uh, those type of events, I think, is great. But uh, I think just the fact that they're so close together on the calendar might be uh, – a little weird for for fans that uh, are new to tennis or you know are uh, are not that familiar with uh, the way it works. Well, I certainly know for me growing up playing a lot of doubles, I always blame my partner when I lost. So these team events would have been right up my alley. I'm sure uh, it's too bad they didn't have them when I was playing. Uh, uh, all the doubles partners that you had, is there one guy that sticks out to say that was my best partner? That's the guy I got along with the best over the years of playing doubles and all the championships that you won out of the '91. Uh, the funny thing is the one that I, I probably least got along with is the one I did the best with. So, uh, you know, Zimenez and I had our ups and downs as far as uh, off the court and, uh, you know, having difference of opinion on, on things. But uh, when we were when we were playing together, we played amazing and he's a great player. And uh, and we, you know, we had a winning record against the Bryans and, and uh, you know, we really, uh, really, you know, gelled as a team. And, uh, you know, with Knowles, uh you know, we, we had our moments of uh, also, you know, there was a little bit of turbulence at times, but uh, we got along really well off the court, and he was a great guy. He was always uh, one of the guys that uh, everyone liked uh, in the locker room, and uh, he was, uh, you know, always uh, helping uh, the players. Like, he's now uh, one of the, on the ATV board, he's one of the, the people uh, leading the players into their uh, negotiations with the tournament. So I think uh, he was doing that also when he was a player, so he was a very likable guy. And then, but uh, the guy that I got along with the most, uh, you know, I didn't have as much success with probably because I didn't play with him as long, but uh, I always regretted not playing with him longer with uh, Max Mirny. I really, uh, he was very laid back, and I think uh, he was he was also a, a top 20 singles player, so I think maybe, uh, 
you know, some of these partnerships, uh, you get guys that uh, are a little bit insecure and they always want to prove themselves and, and, and kind of take control of the, of the, the day in day out uh, relationship aspect of it. But uh, I never sensed that with Max, and uh, you know, he was. Uh, you know, for someone as accomplished as him, he was more than willing to listen and and, uh, and learn and uh, you know all that good stuff. So uh, I I enjoyed that that partnership probably the most, but uh, the other ones were a little bit more successful. So with a lot of young Canadians uh, listening in, what would what would be the best advice you could give to a young Canadian tennis player that's trying to, uh, you know, break through the junior national circuit in Canada and play the ITFs and things like that? What, what's some advice you might give to a young player that's looking to head down the Daniel Nestor path and the Felix and Dennis and Bianca path? Uh, don't do it. Play hockey instead. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, uh, no uh, for sure, patience is important. Uh, you know, it's it's a sport where it's an individual sport. I mean, I, I played singles. I focused on singles till I was thirty, and uh, you know, I, I wanted to be as good as I can singles. That's what I was doing in juniors. That's what I was doing my first ten years on tour. And so you're spending a lot of time by yourself, and and it's all about you. And and uh, you know, at, at times, uh, you know, you lose uh, that common sense of like. You know that the world isn't just about you. That uh, you know you have to you know recognize what's really going on. So you have to you know, pay attention and be careful with that and uh, and stay grounded. But uh, I think just patience, because if you're not winning tournaments every week, you're, you're you know you're playing a lot of tournaments. You're you know you're usually losing at some point during the tournament unless you're winning that tournament. So there's you know if it's a draw of 32, there's 31 losers and there's one winner. So you got to deal with uh, not winning a lot and and. You know, you just got to deal with uh, the grind of, of trying to get to the top. There, are, there aren't many, too many Roger Federer's or John McEnroe's or whoever that, that rise right away. You know, you have to work your way up and go through the different levels, juniors, to transition to the, the lower levels of pros, and then work your way through that and get your ranking higher. And you know, there's a lot of setbacks, but you know, it's just a day in, day out trying to get yourself better and, and you know, making the most of your time. And, and for me, I, I just someone told me. At some point, uh, I think, you know, in my early 30s, and, and I was a late mature, I wish I would have uh, done, you know, certain things differently, but uh, you can't change your personality. But uh, just to try and improve yourself at all times, you know, you can always do a little bit better, and it doesn't mean that you have to kill yourself, but, uh, you know, feel like you're always trying to improve every day, whether it's, uh, you know, you're having a bad day, just trying to get a little bit out of that practice, you're having a good day, get the most you can out of that practice. Uh, but every day you're, you're, you're striving towards, being a better person, being a better tennis player, and uh, and it does, that doesn't mean that you know you don't need to take a week off every now and again if you're, if you're getting uh, you know mentally tired, this and that. That that's also improving. So you just have to know yourself really well and uh, and be patient and and put the time in and maximize your chances. There's no guarantees, but if you do the right things, you're gonna you're gonna maximize your chances to be as good as you can be for sure. Daniel, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That's Daniel Nestor. Coming up next, Michael Downey, President and CEO of Tennis Canada. This is Tennis Talk Canada on TSN 1050. You're listening to Tennis Talk Canada on TSN 1050. Here's Jim Taddy. Welcome back to Tennis Talk Canada. We get you set for the Australian Open, and we go to the top drawer now for Tennis Canada. President and CEO Michael Downey is with us. Michael, how are you today, sir? I'm doing very well, actually. Thanks for uh, for letting me join in. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, and so the obvious uh, no-brainer question off the top, with, with Bianca's win, how has that fueled Tennis Canada? 
well in an enormous way. And it's it's less about tennis Canada and more about tennis in Canada. We we know that young lady from our research has about one third of Canadians following her, which is unbelievable. That's a level that's uh, close to where Roger Federer and Serena Williams is. And we know it's a catalyst for just more inspiration. There are more kids today playing tennis. Maybe not today because it's snowing in Toronto uh, and other parts of this country, but we know in the summer it does drive participation. Um, For a fact, there's over a quarter of a million kids under 12 that play frequently in the summer, and a lot of that has to do with the inspiration that Bianca, Felix, Dennis, uh, Milos, and others are doing, uh, because these kids want to be like their stars. Michael, Ken, Christina, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Uh, Our national training centers, uh, certainly since uh, I can remember, since they've started, it seems to be the difference maker to develop more and better players for our country. Uh, would you say the same and, and, and kind of how did they develop along the way? I would say yes, but it also has a, a bigger impact than actually the kids that um, that go to Montreal to the National Training Centre. There's no doubt when Milos and Jeannie were the first entries to the National Training Centre back in uh, 2007, 2008, uh, they made a difference because those players actually broke through, and they broke through with the help of kind of 724 support um, in getting ready to be pro players. But the other thing I'd make a point is I think having a national training center has raised the bar for all those independent coaches and players that may not be part of our program or are striving to get to the program. Because I think the bar just was raised. And uh, I think that's where success is coming from, is that these kids and these coaches see the success of the Canadian Canadians are now having Milos, Jeannie, Felix, Dennis, Bianca, and others, and it's just raised the bar for how hard they work, how hard they train, and also the uh, the type of support their coaches are giving them. Michael, I'm going to trumpet the uh, Tennis Canada website. I'm on it now. It's it's very impressive. You've got a lot of programs there and a lot of community work. Take us through what your highlights are that way. Well, at the end of the day, you know, um, our strategy is really about three pillars. One is the Rogers Cups because they generate the money that we plow back into the sport. The second one, what we talked about, which is inspiration, and that comes from su- success globally by Canadian players because they uh, they inspire um, kids and adults to pick up a racket and they inspire next generation kids to want to be professional. But the third pillar is kind of the driving force of how we turn this into on going growth and we want to take that inspiration and go out and talk to municipalities across the country to get them interested in investing in bubble tennis courts you can put a six um, court bubble on outdoor courts for less than a million and a half dollars and um, we are we have a real deficit in this country we are one of the worst performing countries with respect to covered courts relative to population and uh, we think we, we have to take advantage of this inspiration to allow more Canadians to play this sport um, year-round because the demand is there. But we also know if we can help 
uh, ignite more covered tennis courts, there's going to be another Bianca or Felix or Dennis that's in a community that currently can't play year-round. And it's going to give that young girl or young boy that opportunity to strive for excellence. So it's really about converting the high-performance inspiration into more covered courts across this country. I agree with you 100% there, Michael, and I think that with more covered courts, we'll see more singles players too because hopefully the cost will drop a little bit and make it more affordable for kids. Um, Absolutely, and the great thing, if I can say, about covered tennis courts, um, you know, part of our pitch to cities is that, look, you can invest and you can actually get a return because um, unlike some other sports that tend to be lost leaders when you build facilities, a, uh, a well-run um, tennis facility with a bubble can make money. Or they can go the, the route of saying, look, we want to minimize our risk. We'll actually lease the land to a private operator who will then invest their own capital. Um, so the city gets the best of both. They get uh, covered tennis playing opportunities for their, their, their uh, resident, uh, their, their citizens, and they don't have to actually put any money into it other than land. I'm happy to hear that. Now, speaking about covered courts, is there any long-term plan to add a roof to the Aviva Centre up at York University? Actually, there's a long-term plan to add a roof to both our centers, one in Montreal and one in Toronto. And we're working diligently um, to try to actually um, secure some government funding to help us in that. We're capable of taking on some debt, uh, but we do believe it's the next stage to protect our sanctions meaning that we these tournaments continue to succeed in Canada and there's no threat of losing those sanctions. But it's also a way of it just making our tournaments better because um, as we see down in Australia and in Wimbledon, um, it's kind of expected these days that you, you move towards covered courts on top of your big playing surfaces. The fans expect it, the players expect it, your sponsors expect it. Well, that's great news. And for a guy that stands out on... Uh stadium court on the final day in a suit. I'm happy to hear there might be uh, a reprieve one day. That's nice. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so you, I saw you at the Davis Cup in Spain. Um, what, what was it like to be a fan of the game to see how well Canada did and with all the Canadian contingent there? It was very, very special. Um, and I want to give credit to the Canadian fans because we were one of the best nations with respect to support of their fans. Um, you know, I'll say that, you know, the USTA actually called me last week to ask what we do to get Canadian fans to Davis Cup. Um, so it's to a certain degree, we may be a bit of a best practice on that end. But having the fans there made a difference uh, because the, the players um, feel it. They feel the support. It makes them feel like it's a home tie. It was very, very special, and especially the run, because um, I don't think, you know, maybe the players wouldn't want me to say this, but I would think the players didn't go into it thinking that they would necessarily make the final. You know, Milos is injured. Uh, Felix was injured coming in. Uh, even Vasek was injured coming in. The only healthy player was really Dennis. And uh, the fact that they got to the finals and gave Spain a run for the money is unbelievable because I think what it says is if when the, within the next couple of years uh, Canada is going to win this Davis Cup just like they're going to win the ATP Cup because they're that good and I think Dennis also showed uh, where his game is at and it's continued into this year of how well he played at the ATP Cup. 
Michael, thanks very much for stopping by. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye now. Bye-bye. That's Michael Downey, President and CEO of Tennis Canada. Up next, Mark Rowe from TSN headquarters talking about the television side and our extensive coverage of the Australian Open. This is Tennis Talk Canada on TSN 1050. You're listening to Tennis Talk Canada on TSN 1050. Here's Jim Taddy. Final segment for the first show. Jim Taddy and Ken Cresita with you. Ken is the director of tennis for the Mayfair Clubs. And we've enjoyed our conversations with Michael Downey and Daniel Nestor. Mark Rowe, uh, who will host all the TV coverage for the Australian Open, will join us very shortly. Uh, just having a little trouble connecting with Mark. But in the meantime, uh, the Nestor conversation was really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, in talking to him over the last couple uh, years, he's really had a difficult time transitioning into doing nothing, so to speak. Uh, but he really doesn't like traveling. So being at home is nice. And it's funny because his wife is now playing in tennis leagues. So uh, everybody around the city is still getting a chance to play a nester. Well, and that's the sort of the, uh, you know, the, the sports angle that nobody ever deals with is, you know, here's what you've achieved and here's what you got paid to do it. But nobody ever considers the physical toll, and, and that, that can be just endless travel, uh, endless no time for yourself, which everybody uh, would, exp- you know, for, for mental wellness, you need that. And uh, there's a lot of wear and tear there that nobody, it's not just physical. Yeah, I think living out of a suitcase is fun for the first first year, maybe two years, and then after that, it's a bit of a grind for these players. And certainly for Nestor, who is always liked being close to home, he really found the travel to be a challenge. Well, and so the the field is set for uh, the four on the men's side and one on the the women's side, and could have been a little deeper, but pretty good representation. Yeah, absolutely, and I think Canada's thrilled to uh, have such great representation. We've got three men in the top 32 seeds at the Australian Open this year, but certainly a disappointment that Stephen Diaz and Braden Schnur fell short, uh, losing before the last round of qualifying. I think for Braden Schnur, who was the third seed in the qualifying, he really felt he had a good uh, bona fide chance of being in the main draw. All right, let's bring in Mark Rowe, who's going to host all this stuff on the TV side for TSN. Mark, how are you this morning? I'm excellent, Jim. Ken, I'm part of this historic show. Thanks for having me. Uh, our pleasure, Guy. <laughs> in, in terms of the uh, the coverage, first of all, let's, let's get the, the, the obvious out of the way. What kind of coverage are we going to have? Uh, we are on the air for 14 straight days. Uh, it all begins on Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 o'clock Pacific. Uh, we will be on multiple feeds. Each day is a little bit different because of you know, programming that's going on across TSN, but a lot of nights we're on three different TSN channels. So, you know, I look at that first night and we'll probably have one channel that's dedicated to ESPN's programming. We'll have one definitely dedicated to Dennis Shapovalov's match, which he kicks things off on Margaret Court. So that'll be at seven o'clock. And the Milos Ronich will be at around eight thirty, nine o'clock at night on another TSN channel. So uh, that is the beauty of having five feeds across TSN. Uh, we can show multiple tennis matches, especially in that first week of a Grand Slam. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I can tell you, Mark, as a young Canadian growing up watching tennis in this country, it is a thrill for me to see that many feeds on TSN and be able to watch our young Canadian players. So thank you for that. That's for sure. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to take all the credit, but really it's probably <laughs> the, the executives. But anyway, thanks, Ken. Um, <laughs> I know you've uh, you've done some interviews with Bianca. Can you tell us a little bit about the time you've spent with her and, and her personality and kind of how she's uh, uh, kind of jumping at the chance to, to uh, promote tennis in this country? It really was this cool experience for two weeks to see this young Canadian 
Um, and, and, you know, she walks onto the court and she's so confident and brash. And, and you kind of need that in tennis or any individual sport. Um, and to see what she's like off the court as well. And it's not that she at all loses that confidence, but she is still humble um, and she's mature. She she kind of is what you – in the media um, – you know, she's the same off the camera as she is on. And I was always impressed with her. And, you know, she spoke with us the day before the championship match against Serena. She didn't have to. You know, Serena didn't talk to the media that day. Um, she was loose. She was comfortable with herself. Um, and, and the story that I always go back to was, you know, a couple hours before that match against Serena, you know, our broadca- broadcast location was right where all the practice courts are at the U.S. Open, and Serena's practicing. And then 20 minutes later, Bianca walks out and practices next to her. And, you know, I talked to Sylvan Bruno, her coach, about that after she had won. And when Sylvan saw that, he went to Bianca and said, okay, we can move this. Like, we don't need to be practicing next to Serena. And Bianca's response was, no way. Like, why should we change anything because of whom I'm playing? You know, I'm the one who's dictating this day. I'm the one who's dictating this tournament. And and for, you know, a teenager to be saying that is ridiculous. And, and it's one of the reasons why Canadians fell in love with her story that she created all last year and what she will continue to write throughout her career. Mark, you cover other sports, and you've seen this with other athletes. Uh, for the greats, it's as they're emerging, it's almost like they've been there before. And for her, in that big match, it was the poison power that just, I mean, it was it, it was a revelation, wasn't it? Well, it really was. And all tournament, I thought, when is the moment going to get to her? When You know, she played all these matches in Arthur Ashe Stadium, the largest tennis stadium in the world. And for the most part, she had the crowd with her, with her. But you remember the, the Taylor Townsend match where the Americans were against her, and you know, of course, everyone there wanted to see Serena, you know, match Margaret Court's record. And it wasn't that they were against Bianca, but they were obviously for Serena. And then at five five in, a, in that second set, and we're in line to go out on the court and interview her. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is it, you know. And Serena had that comeback going, and the, and the concrete wall behind me is shaking. And she's plugging her ears, and she regrouped and won the next game, the next two games. Like you know, it was no big deal. Obviously, it was a huge deal. Uh, but you're right. Like the composure and the maturity is something I I have not seen from a young player at that stage of their career playing in the U.S. Open for the first time. Like I, I think that's part of the story that kind of gets overshadowed. Um, you're right. She acts like she's won multiple Grand Slams, and I think. As long as she's able to stay healthy in her career, she's going to be a multiple champion at the Slams. Mark, thanks very much. Wish we had more time. Awesome. Thanks, guys. That's Mark Rowe hosting uh, the Australian Open on TSN, and it starts at 7 tomorrow night. So when you look at the schedule and you see Chapeau Monday, it's Monday tomorrow night there. Correct, yeah. It's always a little tricky when the Australian Open's going on. Uh, so really enjoyed this. Uh, and, you know, Time flies fast. We're done. Our next show will be March 7th, getting set for the action at Indian Wells. That'll be exciting, too. It will be for sure, and uh, it's great to talk tennis in Canada. That's for sure, Jim. Thanks for putting this together. No, no problem. Well, I'm not going to say no problem, but, but, <laughs> but it was fun, and it went fast, and so those are the two things you look for. Was it fun? Did it go fast? Good. We'll do it again. Thanks for joining us on Tennis Talk Canada on TSN 1050.